my name is Ian. I've been at TBC for about 12 months or so and I'll be assisting with the Christianity Explained course. The reading this morning is Acts chapter 8 verses 26 to 40. If you don't have a Bible, there are free Bibles at the back of the church and you're welcome to take one and follow along. That's Acts chapter 8 verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip however appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Father God we just pray again um, that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth might be pleasing in your sight in Jesus name. So here we come to Acts chapter 8, and it's, it's a beautiful chapter, isn't it, about um, how a Greek-speaking Jew uh, draws alongside uh, an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, listens to him, asks questions, is invited up next to, and then gets the opportunity to explain the gospel. Um, Baptist Mission Australia has existed for about 140 years, and This kind of mission, this drawing alongside, uh, listening to, answering questions, and when the moment comes, when the opportunity to speak about Jesus comes, uh, it's taken with glee. Um, This kind of mission is particularly uh, relevant in places where the gospel has been rejected as foreign 
or has been rejected for some other reason. So just to give you an example, when we first committed a team to work in the north of Thailand, where Margaret is, uh, we began to have teams live in the area, begin the process of learning language and building the relationships. What, what often would happen as, as they were there for a, a longer period of time is short-term teams would come through, they'd preach the gospel, and they'd get a whole group of responses because the Thai are very polite people, right? So they'd come through, they'd preach, and then they'd leave, and then all those who had raised their hand in response actually had no idea what was going on. And just the very next day, they returned to life as if those guests had never come. Like they needed a a longer-term gospel presence within that people to, to, to not only hear Jesus proclaimed, but to see what following Jesus actually meant in life. To give you another story, uh, we went to work in Central Asia. We sent a team, and there was this beautiful couple from Newcastle went to work in an Islamic community. Uh, they had trouble getting an identity within that community because not many foreigners lived within that community. So they started out as photographers. Uh, it was a bit of a tourist mecca site, so people would go. So photography made sense. Uh, the couple made friendships with an elder in the local mosque and began to develop a relationship. Now, the, the elder in the mosque came to our workers one day and said, um, who are you and why are you here? You can guess this couple from Newcastle took in a deep breath because they'd been around long enough in this community to know that if they said Christian at this point, it could mean they would be out of that community quick smart. The other thing that had worried them too is as as they'd listened to this community share, they realized the label Christian had nothing to do with Jesus in the perception of this community. Uh, To be a Christian meant you were immoral because they... They gathered their perceptions of Christianity from Western television, right? So they watched Hollywood movies and thought, that's how you be a Christian, right? So, uh, so they, they thought, well, we're not like Hollywood movies. Like, we're not immoral. The second thing they thought was that all Christians hated Muslims because of the Crusades. And they thought to themselves, well, we don't hate these people. We're actually here because we love them, right? Then um, they, they had this perception of them, that, of Christians, that they're unclean. Now, this couple from Newcastle, because they were working among Muslims, had decided not to eat pork or have any unclean items in their house so they could invite people over. So as they thought how they would answer Samuel, they thought, well, if, if we say Christian, uh, we're gone but we do want to honour Jesus in this situation, so we don't want to deny our faith. Um, But they had this brainwave, and this is what our worker said. He said, I won't tell you what I am and why I'm here for. Can you watch my life, and then you tell me what I am and why you're here? Now, thankfully, the, the elder in the mosque was content with this answer. So they just went on with life in that community, uh, they, they began reading the Bible together. Uh, they began, they did shared meals together. Their relationship grew and grew. And after a, a period of some months, the elder in the mosque came back to them and said, I know who you are and why you're here. He said, I know you're not a Christian because you're a moral man. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? 
And he said, he went through his list and he said, he said, you are, and he said this phrase in the local language, which meant, you are a lover of Jesus. So he'd watched his life, he'd see him live out his life, and what he discovered before him was a, was a person who loved Jesus. Now, you can imagine what our worker felt that day, right? Because that was the very reason they were there, to live out the life of Christ before this community. And what's beautiful about that story, now this doesn't always happen, is that elder in that local mosque actually went on a faith journey. It took him another six years, right? Where he came to trust Jesus for himself. Right, but this was urgent mission, but it was slow mission. There was that call to draw alongside and walk with people and listen to their life and ask questions. And when the moment came, the opportunity came to share the good news about Jesus. Now, when we come to, to Acts 8, I know you've been on this journey through Luke, uh, through Easter, and last week you're in Luke 24. Now, I didn't get a chance to listen to the sermon, is, but uh, is that right, Luke 24? But Luke 24 is this key moment in the, the epic story of Luke-Acts, the two-part epic story of the revelation of Jesus, right? And, and the gospel of Luke moves quickly, but as you come to the center of the book, there's this sense that all the events of the gospel slow down. So whereas events uh, in the early parts of Luke gospel skip over years and months and in single chapters, vast chunks of time are covered, when you get to the passion of Jesus Christ, things slow down to almost days and hours and minutes. And it's a bit, this is a really crass analogy, right? It's a bit like when we watch sport on television. You know, when there's, a, there's moments of significance in sport, what they do is they tend to slow things down and replay them hundreds of times, right? Um, because you know at this point in the story is really important and you've got to pay attention to the detail. Well, it's like that in the Gospel of Luke in that things have slowed down. The focus has come in on the most important events in the Gospel. And that's where we see the, the perfect life of Christ was extinguished on a cross for us in our place. That's slowed down and focused in. And, and it's there in Luke 24 that we get the first commission uh, in Luke 24, 45, that says this. Then he opened their minds that they could understand the scriptures and he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his, na or in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Right, so you flip through the next few pages of Luke and you open up to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you get that famous restatement of Luke 24. You read these, you could probably recite this to me, but it says, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we get the program for the rest of the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells this story. You know, Gordon Fee in that little classic, reading the Bible book by book, says this. He says, the key to reading Acts is to recognize the movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, narrated in six parts or panels, and signaled by Luke's little summary statements. Um, 
in each case, the narrative seems to pause for a moment before it takes off in a new direction, sometimes geographically, sometimes ethnically, and sometimes both. So in the first six chapters of the book of Acts, you hear about the, the gospel's progress in Jerusalem, right? And then, and then things are bumped out amongst Aramaic, firstly Aramaic-speaking Jews. Then it crosses a cultural barrier and goes to Greek-speaking Jews. Now there's difficulty because the Greek-speaking Jews have widows who are neglected, right? So there's a bit of a scuffle. So these bump-outs don't always happen without conflict and, and difficulty. But the gospel goes to Greek-speaking Jews. And then we get to... Uh, chapter 8, and there's this incredible chapter where almost the whole of the book of Acts is anticipated because here we find that the gospel jumps out uh, to the Samaritans and by the end of the chapter, it bumps out to an Ethiopian eunuch which anticipates the gospel going to the rest of the world. So in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we get this initial bump where it says this, uh, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the Jerus church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So even when the gospel was in Jerusalem, there was this tendency towards inertia, to staying where they were, staying with the same language group. And it's actually when persecution comes that the church is bumped out. They're almost bumped out reluctantly. But what's beautiful about this passage is we find out that the people of the early church were people of the cross and the resurrection. You know, when Stephen was killed... They didn't pretend that it didn't hurt. Uh, it says the brothers mourned for him deeply. Like uh, Christians, when we're persecuted, when the global church is persecuted, uh, they're not like superheroes where the arrows bounce off. The arrows actually go in and they hurt and they wound. And it's a beautiful call for us as Christians to actually mourn and not play pretend when things are hard. Like they mourned deeply. Perhaps they prayed some of the psalms of lament. God, where are you? Right? They, they felt and were impacted by their suffering. But the next thing we find out is as they're dispersed, that they're actually people of the resurrection. That they have this life through death power at work within them. So when they're dispersed... Through a really hard moment in their story, they actually share the one who was crucified and risen for their sake. They share the gospel. And what's amazing in, in Acts chapter 8 is before we get to the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, we find out that a Samaritan church is birthed. The gospel is preached by a Greek-speaking Jew in Samaria, and a church comes into being. And this is almost unthinkable, even in the Gospel of Luke. So I don't know if you can remember that story where Jesus and the disciples are, are traveling through Samaria, and Jesus preaches, and the Samaritans reject uh, the message of the good news of the kingdom, right? So 
the two sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, being true to their names, actually asked Jesus if he could call down thunder for lightning from heaven to blow these people up, right? So just a, just a book earlier in the Bible, um, the disciples are wanting to have these people blown up, right? And then you fast forward just a little bit through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, and then you have a church among the Samaritans, what God can do. But then we get to our passage, to Acts chapter 8, verse 26, and we find this next bump out, and it's a really significant one. And it starts with this line in verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now here we see that God is the initiator of this mission. It isn't Philip's idea. Like God is a God on mission and he's always sending his church out. So Chris Wright, who is a mission scholar, amazing man, he has this really great line. He says, God doesn't have a mission for the church in the world he says that God has a church for his mission in the world. Does that make sense? That God is a missionary God and he's asking us to walk in step with him in his purposes in the world. Like if we're stuck, if we're not reaching out to our community, if we're not being called to new places, to new cultures, to, then the problem is probably with us because God is calling us out beyond our comfort. He's calling us to join him in his mission in the world. But then as we read on, we find this in verse 27. He started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So he goes out and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, there's a few things to say about this. Now, it's, it's, it's helpful probably if I explain what a eunuch is because I've come a, taught about this story a, a few times and people said, what's a eunuch? And it's an awkward thing to explain in a church, right? <laughs> but I'm going to just explain it, right? So a eunuch's whole job was to serve their king or queen in their court with single-minded, devoted service. Right, there was no room for family, that would be a distraction. There was no room for relationships, that would be a distraction. So what happened, a eunuch was emasculated or castrated for those reasons. So they could never have a family of their own, they would never have a legacy, they would never have a heritage, they would never have... They, their life was just about someone else, and it's probably appropriate for a eunuch that we don't even find out their name because they weren't really people who were to be made a fuss about. So this, this person, this guy is a eunuch, right? That's, his whole future has been taken away. His life is all about the present and serving his queen. Now, these can look like really unimportant people, right? Because they have no future, they have no name. But I reckon it's not a stretch because Philip is familiar with the book of Isaiah, right? We'll find out a little bit later in this passage. But when Philip is called to this guy and he meets him, I've almost got no doubt he had Isaiah 56 in mind, 
right? He knew the scriptures, so he knew the kind of people that God was drawn to. If you go to Isaiah 56, 1 to 3, you read these beautiful words. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So Philip knows that when he comes across this eunuch, this is the kind of person who looks like they have no future, who, who look very unimportant, who look like their life is about someone else. In the scripture, we find out that God sees people just like this. He sees people who are not famous. He sees people who don't have a heralded name. He sees people that seem to have no future and he cares for them and loves them. And I don't know if that's your story. Most of us feel pretty ordinary, don't we? We don't feel like famous missionaries or heroes or very significant. Sometimes we can feel like this eunuch that we can't even see our way forward or we, we don't feel we have a future. But the beautiful thing about this passage in Isaiah, it says, God, the maker of all the universe, sees people just like this. And in this moment, he sees him and sends a person to him to let him know how much he matters to him. So that's what happens next. If you look at verse 27, um, this, we find out that this man has actually gone to Jerusalem to worship God. And he's on his way home and he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the word of God comes to Philip in verse 29 and says, The Spirit told Philip to go to that chariot and stay near it. Um, when it says stay near it, it's this Greek word kaleo, which means cling to it, associate with it, join it, walk with it. So Philip doesn't know anything else yet about his, what he's supposed to do. He's just told to go and run near a chariot. I don't know if you've thought about that, but... I don't know if you'd be going, Lord, I'd love to, but I'm just not fit enough. I haven't been keeping my steps up. But, he, he, you know, his, his job is just to go and kind of run near this chariot, right? And there's this beautiful kind of tension here because here we see in this, this passage of the Bible is that God is the initiator of mission, but we still have a role to play as his partners in mission. So we can, we can fall into two traps. We can say, well, I don't have to be involved in mission because God is, is amazing and powerful. And if God wants to do mission, he'll do it on his own. He doesn't need me, right? Then there's another extreme where we actually anxiously think it's all up to us. It's all on our shoulders and that we need to do everything and take every opportunity and because the pressure of world mission is on our shoulders, right? And usually when that happens, the press is too much and we give up. Now here in Acts chapter 8, we have this beautiful kind of togetherness where God is the author of mission. He's the sender. But he calls us to partner with him. So Philip has a role in that mission. So when God says go, he, he goes. So he, he goes off and just does the next thing he knows that God has asked him to do, which is to go near and join. 
to run next to this chariot, right, to draw near. So he's running next to this chariot. And then in verse 30, it says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard. So he's not running next to the chariot going, you know, now I don't want to, there are places for tracks and things like that, right? But at the moment, he's like, do you know the four spiritual laws? Like he's not, he's not doing that, right? He's, he's listening. Like he's, he's listening to hear for God at work. Uh, Paul has this beautiful understanding of the gospel that he actually preaches in Acts 17, where this incredible sermon that he preaches in Athens to this group of people who are far from God. But part of the speech is this. So this is Acts 17, 24. He says to them, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did, did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Philip knows that God, the God who's not far from any human being. You know, there's this corny line, which I believe totally that, you know, you might walk a million steps away from God, but it's only ever one step back. And here's that beautiful point in this story where God is close to this man, even though he feels so far away. So Philip drew alongside, he listened, and this is what he hears. The man was reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked him a question. He doesn't say, this is what it means. He, he asked gently, he says to the man, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And then he gets this reply, how can he, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So I invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Isn't this a beautiful moment? Like he's drawn near, he's listened, he's asked questions. And then the man says, well, even for Philip's fitness, take a break, <laughs> come up and sit next to me and explain what's going on. Doesn't this describe what all church ministries are almost about? Like everything we do in a local church, isn't it really a, an opportunity to walk alongside people in their place and their life, to, to draw near to them, to listen to them, uh, to ask questions about their lives, and then be invited into, into conversations about the meaning of life. See, this is what happens in this story. And then it says this in verse 32. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before us, its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about himself or someone else? 
Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip in this moment, right, Philip has this conviction that the whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. In him, in Jesus is the fullness, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Uh, The most important thing he can talk to about this man is Jesus Christ. And the beautiful thing about this particular passage is how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, connects with this eunuch story. Remember, the eunuch was someone with no name, no descendants, no future, no, you know. But here he finds out about a suffering servant who faced great injustice. And like this eunuch, he had no future. He was cut off. And he would have no descendants. And no, we don't find out all the in-between of what Philip said. But you can imagine him talking about the life of Jesus Christ. The, the God who was made flesh and lived among us. Who lived the human experience. Who drew near, right? So Jesus knew what it was to be a refugee before the age of three. He knew hunger. He knew poverty. He knew laughter. He knew feasting. He knew mourning. He knew happiness. Jesus knew tears. He knew what it was to feel that pit of hunger in the the middle of his stomach. This was the God who was with us. And not only did he know what it was to be human in those ways, he actually stepped into the worst of human experience. He took on our sin on his shoulders and went to the cross on our place. And it looked like his life had come to nothing, right? But the story of the gospel doesn't end there. Three days later, he rose again from the grave and defeated death. And now he had descendants. And when he had descendants, it's not children. It's this global family from all around the planet Earth could become children of God because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus of the Messiah. See, see, in this story... This eunuch could find out he indeed had a name and he had a place and he was now part of a family. Like he had one who knew his, the difficulty of his existence. Jesus never had kids, never had a family of his own. But now he had a global family. And this man finds out he can be part of that story. And it's no wonder that this is what happens next. If you look at verse 36, it says, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared to Asidus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. You know, we never, we meet, I think, Philip for like just a verse more later in the story. Because this isn't a story about heroes. This is a story about the mission of God being given into the hands of ordinary people. Like as you read the book of Acts, it starts with Peter and John, and then it's uh, 
people like Stephen, and then it's like Philip, and then it's then he disappears. The, the only one that looks maybe like they could be the hero of the story is the Apostle Paul, right? But he's actually the anti-hero. Like God chooses him because he's the worst of sinners. Like his life is like a signboard that says, if God can forgive me, he can forgive anyone, right? This is not a hero story, right? This is about, well, the only hero is Jesus in this story. And ordinary people get to participate in the mission of God. Ordinary people are the ones that point people to Jesus. Uh, there's this slide I wanted to show you. This is just from, um, from McCrindle Research. And, and, and it just talks about what's attractive to people in the Australian community, right, when it comes to faith, um, let alone the global community. But it says the things that are most attractive and the things that are least. I don't know if you noticed, the, the most unattractive thing people find in Australian culture when it comes to Christians sharing their faith is hearing from public figures and celebrities who are examples of that faith. Like people don't want to see celebrities and public figures. Can you see what's on the other side, the top reason? Seeing people who live out genuine faith. That's what people want to hear. Number two was experiencing personal trauma of a life event, like being there in people's lives when things go wrong or stories of testimonies of people who have changed due to their faith, like the stories and testimonies of people like you and me. Like, I don't know how many of you think you have a story that's not worth sharing or not worth telling. It's not that good. I'm not that... Uh, I can't even find the word that's so ironic. Um, when you can say stuff in an understandable way. <laughs> I'm not that lucid. But here we find out, even people in our own country are yearning for Christians to be genuine and to share their story. Now, I'm here on behalf of a global mission group. And can I say... There are people living in lands that go from birth to death without meeting someone who lives this way. There's, there's no church in their community. And, and what they need, uh, and it's not going to be easy, is not like a short-term mission. <laughs> they can be helpful, right? But what they need is someone to go near, to draw near, to listen to ask questions, maybe add to that, learn languages, uh, come to grips with culture, <laughs> and then share the message of Jesus in a way that personally connects with their story. This is the mission of God that we're called to join with him on. Let's do that. Let me pray. Father God, we just thank you that you are the missionary God who's made yourself known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ that you call us by name to walk with you. Help us simply to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.